0: Hello, and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Faisal Rivzi was one of the authors of the influential book Globalising Education Policy. That was published in 2009, and now Fazl and his colleagues are preparing a new volume of essays that attempts to make sense of everything that's happened over the past 12 years. So what does it now mean to talk about globalisation and education in light of Trump and Covid and climate change? What new ideas and critique are now relevant? In short, what do education researchers of the 2020s now need to be talking about? I caught up with Faisal in Melbourne as he was putting the finishing touches to his new chapters, and we started with a brief look back to when he was first thinking of writing the initial book. Just how were issues of globalisation and education being discussed back in the 1990s?
1: The whole discourse of globalisation in its neoliberal imaginary emerged after the Cold War. So 1989 is a significant date, and indeed, when I think back, that was the first time that I encountered academic literature on globalization. And in the early 90s, it just expanded, exploded. There was a huge amount of it. And it was largely predicated on the assumption that the Cold War was over. There was no ideological contest as such between the left and the right, uh, and that uh, the world was going to become increasingly market oriented and liberal-democratic. And this was most uh, exaggeratedly stated by Fukuyama. Uh, end of history. Of course, it turned out to be really quite fundamentally false, and it didn't take very long for it to be shown to be false. Uh, But nonetheless, you know, it was the kind of orientation that dominated thinking around, uh, around, around the 1990s. The other uh, factor that really should not be forgotten as to how neoliberal, wo- uh, how globalization was interpreted in neoliberal terms uh, of a particular kind is Tony Giddens and uh, uh, and, and Tony Blair, uh, that little, little couplet, you know, uh, and their third way, you know, so basically uh, that was really a thesis of transcendence rather than anti-binary. So it wasn't the case that, uh, that uh, you know, it was neither left nor uh, right, but something else. It was basically that a particular ideology had become dominant,
0: uh, and that was market ideology. And what were the promises around education in particular?
1: Well, education was largely uh, uh, couched around a discourse of crisis. You know, there was a crisis that were emerging uh, and the crisis had possibilities and opportunities associated with it as well. So globalization was going to actually create a whole range of interesting problems uh, in relation to the ways we engage with the technology, in relation to engage with the mobility and all those sort of things. And that uh, we really needed to rethink education in a relatively fundamental way. So in 2004, for example, I got my students, PhD students at the University of Illinois to look at, uh, at, uh, at the last report of 11 different countries, last major, all of them had the same structure. They start off sort of saying globalization is here to stay, markets are here to stay, uh, this is creating a crisis, and the crisis is largely about, uh, about how do we actually respond to new economy and new technology and new politics of difference
0: and we had lifelong learning and lifelong the learning society learning
1: and, sort of and knowledge knowledge economy and all those sort of things so knowledge economy emerged as a solution to the problem rather than a premise of the problem you know so as a result a uh, lot of people started talking about that and uh, and uh, by the time we wrote our book globalizing educational policy a neoliberal imaginary of that kind was absolutely triumphant absolutely dominant, uh, even though there were beginning to be all kinds of objections, uh, uh, even in the official circles uh, around 2008, when there was a great big uh, big crisis, you know, global financial crisis, and that unsettled some of the comfort zone that was occupied by the uh, the hyper-globalizers, you know.
0: But now, 2022, you're writing a new uh, kind of version of the book and one of the I guess the theme in this new book is that the neoliberal promises of education have waned yeah Then the world has moved on, but it still remains popular for education researchers to talk about the neoliberal nature of education. And so is education research stuck in the past or how should we be talking about neoliberalization? I think
1: it has. It is stuck in the past. uh, But there are indications that people are problematizing it uh, in ways that uh, was not the case uh, when we wrote the book uh, to the same extent. Now, to my mind, if 1989 was a significant year, then so was 2007. That's when Twitter came, that's when Airbnb came, that's when um, uh, Facebook came, that's when Spart- uh, iPhone came, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And that actually changed the nature of communication systems and the capacity to collect a huge amount of data without people knowing about it, as you know. You know. And as a result, I per- personally believe that 2007, this is just before GFC, is a significant area that we need to study. So my understanding of globalization is now to actually see these two uh, historical junctures, 89, the Cold War ending, and 2007, basically the arrival of smartphone, you know, mobile technologies, Mm -hmm. if you like. And I think mobile technologies have changed the ways in which we do research and the ways in which uh, we think about research even, you know, and of course it has also raised the, the issues about what is the nature of transnational communication systems.
0: But it's also changed the economy. And that's
1: changed the economy, you know, basically because e-commerce has become dumb. I mean, the e-commerce was there in the 1990s. uh, You know, that's when it all started. Uh, But uh, I don't think e-commerce was thought in the terms that it is thought about now, instantaneous, spontaneous, you know, basically ubiquitous and, uh, and, and bringing everything together in a very rapid fashion. So as a result, uh, I think the technological shifts from 2007 have actually changed the ways in which we collect data, we communicate with each other, and as a result, we do economy and we do politics as well.
0: So we have a very different flavour of neoliberalism, we have a very different flavour of globalisation and I guess the book is going to cover a lot of major developments over the past 10 years. And I wanted to focus just on three in particular. The first is the rise of Asia. What are we talking about here and how is it playing out in terms of education? Well there is a
1: lot of debate at the moment in the literature on how we interpret the rise of Asia. Quantitative terms, it's not very hard to say. I mean, the average uh, growth income, growth, uh, uh, e- economic growth has been around six to 7%, you know, uh, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing anywhere in the West that matches that, those kind of numbers. So, so numbers are not question, it's what's the significance of this, you know, and how is it happening and what it is that is happening that connects the old world with the new world. Okay. There, are, there are a number of ways of interpreting. One is to actually see uh, rise of Asia as basically an extension of rise of China. Okay. Mm-hmm. China is the big monster that is driving all the neighboring countries and as a result uh, uh, China knows that and is actually influencing through brick, uh, ro- uh, ro- uh, brick and road initiative and all those other initiatives you know, their sphere of power becoming uh, what they think they're entitled to be a big superpower. So that's one way of looking it. The other way of looking at it is that there's going to be tension for foreseeable future between West and East, basically clash of civilizations, you know, and that uh, in that uh, China is winning the war. Okay. That's a, a thesis that's presented by Kishore Mohabhani, who, who's a major uh, d- uh, international relations theorist in Singapore. Uh, so in, the, in other words, this will happen. The other one is that, uh, that uh, Asia is a system rather than a country, right. you know. Um, in other words, it's an abstraction. It's interconnected with each other. And as a result, it's the region that is becoming dominant uh, with all its problems, internal conflicts and internal uh, internal debates and internal differences and all those sort of things. Those are going to persist, but they're going to increasingly work as a system. You know, so it's not a world system, but is Asia as a system. Mm. You see what I mean? And that thesis is becoming quite popular. Okay. And in many ways, uh, in the last 10 years, it's that notion of uh, Asia that is becoming. So in other words, the question about where the boundaries of Asia is not as relevant as what is the system called Asia.
0: And what implications does that have for the kind of Western education system? Then? Well,
1: it has huge implications, largely because uh, um,
0: uh, the Western
1: education system has uh, basically grown rapidly, okay, especially higher education systems as a result of the rise of Asia, demand, basically, from the rising middle class in Asia, not only uh, China, but are now increasingly countries like Nepal and, uh, and, 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 uh, and Bangladesh and places like that. you know. uh, And as a result, uh, uh, our demography at universities in particular, but also increasingly at school, has become integrated with Asia, but against the framework of all the basically tensions that are historical and persist. You know, so I think uh, that is the major consequence as to how we interpret the world, in which Asia is ascendant, and yet uh, there is no sign of disappearance of colonial West either.
0: Yes, yes, <laughs> the colonial West. Now that brings me on actually to the second theme from the book that I wanted to t- just touch upon: the rise of nationalism, populism, and anti-globalisation. I mean. We're thinking now about education in an era of kind of Trump and Modi and Bolsonaro. And we're already seeing the suppression of Marxist teachers and this kind of pushback against the critical race. I mean, where where is this heading? Where isn't that populism and nationalism heading? And what might we do about it? Well, I think,
1: again, we need to understand the anxiety produced by the neoliberal globalization of Bla- Blairite kind, of, you know. Um, and uh, that actually created the kind of inequalities and, uh, and it didn't deliver on the promises, okay? And I think that has led to um, a degree of uh, unhappiness that, of course, uh, populist leaders like Trump and, and Bolsonaro and people like that have been able to capture and exploit. Um, so there's, there's that one side of it. Um, the other side of uh, the rise of populism is uh, that, uh, that uh, new uh, market rationality has become entrenched, okay, and people cannot see what comes after it, Mm. you know, and as a result, uh, everything is not being focused on economic issues, but on cultural issues, you know, so the politics has become increasingly identity-driven, not only by the left, but also by the right. The right actually is wanting to go back and reassert an identity, that is privileged, and the left is trying to contest it. Both of them are talking about identity. So when people on the right say, well, those leftists, they play identity politics, instead of saying, they may be playing it, but you play it better,
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and education is a kind of- a Education
1: of is the place where this is becoming really co- And as a result, uh, what we're saying is critique of uh, critical race theory. I mean, I say to people, Do you know what theory means? Theory means is a possible explanation, not the definitive explanation. So to take a theory that is a potential explanation of racial inequalities, potential explanation, is kind of silly because then you're sort of saying that we will not even ask question about racial inequalities because that's what uh, critical race theory does. Critical race theory is not a definitive description of what is and what is not. It is an attempt to understand, theoretically, a phenomena that has been identified and that nobody, nobody denies. Nobody denies that there's racial inequalities. Okay, is how do you understand it? Well, racial uh, CT, CRT is one
0: way of understanding it. Well, we're not and living in times of nuance, unfortunately. No,
1: we're, we're not. You know, so, so the term theory itself Actually is being presented as a fact. I mean if that is so, then evolution theory shouldn't be taught either, which some people say the good thing. But you shouldn't teach a religious theory either, you know, because if you're if you're down on theory then be down on every theory rather than <laughs> just this one theory
0: now you mentioned popularism as a kind of uh, arising from anxiety one of the other big anxieties is, is climate change environmental crisis so, which is the third theme in the book that mm-hmm. i was really interested in. i mean this clearly is an issue for every sector of society But i mean what specifically are the imperatives for education in this era of climate change well
1: to start off with uh, i think one way of looking at it is to say that younger people Uh, are now well and truly aware of it. You know, in fact, the consciousness and alarm that they experience is much greater than people of uh, older age, either your age or mine, you know, Um, basically, and as a result, uh, it's an issue uh, for them for the future. So just as uh, In my time, it was Vietnam War and anti-apartheid. And for the next generation, it was, uh, um, you know, global institutions and the harm that they were doing, if you like, uh, the inequalities that they were producing. The new generation is absolutely focused on it. Uh, And I don't think that's going away anytime soon. And as a result, uh, in schools, there's going to be greater and greater demand to actually address those issues. And I think that's already happening. And UNESCO has recognized it. uh, The World Bank has recognized it. Um, Right-wing governments are resisting it. But they recognise it.
0: They recognise it. But thinking back to kind of war and the one percent, I mean, very little of those problems have actually been kind of addressed <laughs> satisfactorily. So I, I really mm. hope that climate change is addressed slightly better than those.
1: Because it really is a big problem, especially in our region. I mean, we don't realise that uh, uh, the country north of us, Indonesia, is thousand islands. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, that is likely to be hugely, hugely affected in the ways in which uh, uh, Aceh uh, and, the, and the big tsunami uh, about a decade or so ago was, I mean, that is, uh, if you like, uh, the indicator of what is possible. You know, I mean, there are at least four countries that could be submerged completely underwater, including Maldives, you know, in our region. Uh, and, of course, that's going to create a problem of migration and populism, and uh, and uh, and uh, economy, and uh, the kind of mobilities that will uh, lead people to be completely freak out if they haven't already.
0: Well, Australia doesn't deal well with migration at the best of times, so climate migration is probably going to be so, a step too far. Uh, c- circling back to something we were talking about a second ago, in terms of theory, mm-hmm. given all of these changes with technology, with kind of mm-hmm. geopolitics, with climate change. What new ideas and new theories and new trends should education researchers be grappling with? I mean, what approaches do you see being important in, in this forthcoming decade? Who should we be reading? What should we be thinking about? Well,
1: there are, there are some postcolonial theorists who are quite... Uh, Walter Mignolo is one of the people. Some of the Africanists who are writing. A guy called Abache Mabembe I'm really quite keen on. Um, I've got to tell you, that one of the people that I am really, really keen on, and if he had written in French, then he would be regarded as a major, major scholar, okay? And that's Raymond Williams and uh, and, and Stuart Hall, okay? Mm -hmm. These people were writing in ways about culture and about community and about politics that was Mm -hmm. deeply insightful. And in fact, as the time has gone on and the conditions have changed, their relevance, if anything, has intensified and has increased. So I'm actually getting my students to read Stuart Hall and uh, the kind of work that was going on in Birmingham Center for Cultural Studies, you know, and, uh, and also the kind of stuff that uh, uh, Raymond Williams was talking about, a different kind of Marxism, not the Marxism of, of, uh, of, the, of the Russian kind, <laughs> you know, but Marxism of contemporary British society. Uh, you know about uh, migration, about uh, about uh, populism, about uh, about uh, about markets, about the relationship between civil society and the state, all of these issues were being addressed by them. Yeah, yeah. And there is a m- huge, huge mine of good material that we have yet to use fully and apply it to our conditions. Absolutely. you know so i'm I'm, I'm a keen, uh, <laughs>
0: no, no, everyone should be. Now, presuming the book is going to cover heaps of stuff, I'm sure, and it's coming sure. out in 2022. Presuming a 12-year cycle, mm-hmm. given that it was 12 years before the, the yeah, first yeah, one was written, yeah, yeah. what do you think a third edition of the book might <laughs> be discussing in 2023? Sorry, in 2033. 33, yeah. Where might we be in the 2030s? I mean, could you speculate a little bit about possible futures?
1: Uh, that is very difficult. Huh? Um, let me actually say something about thinking about future itself. One is to actually think about uh, future in terms of uh, in terms of prediction. Okay, basically, if the trend line is this, where is it likely to be? Okay, in other words, probabilistic. Okay, this is probable. This is possible. The other one is uh, is 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 the is the is the is normative. Basically, this is what it ought to be. This is preferable. This is preferable. This is the this is the future that we want to make. And then there is, of course, Arthur C. Clarke kind of future, you know, speculative. So I've got uh, I've got predictive, uh, normative and speculative. I actually think that we need to actually bring all those three things together and try to actually see what trends are already ev- evident and how do we use those trends so that we can develop a normativity against a total speculation as to what the world might be like, you know. Um, and, uh, and so, if I were to guess, I mean, I think uh, we've seen nothing yet. But is there any room for hope? I think there is. I mean, but the hope has to be constructed. Hope can't be predicted, you know. And that's why I make that distinction between those three categories of future thinking. Um, the trouble, of course, with uh, organizations like uh, OECD that have now become obsessed with uh, future thinking, it's largely predictive, largely quantitative. Uh, so, as a result, the, the ethics of possibility is not explored as much as ethics of probability. Okay. So, I'm one of those people who really do, do, uh, uh, does believe that uh, we actually ought to look at the trends and sort of saying, how can we steer them, okay, towards certain other direction. In other words, there is much more urgency about uh, ethical Discussions about the future, and not simply predictive definitions about uh, deliberations about the future.
0: Excellent. Well, I look forward to reading the twenty thirty three, but I'll also look forward 20, to reading 30. the twenty I, twenty one. I, I 20, hope I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will be. but well, it's been great talking to you, Father. Right. Uh, uh, thanks ever so much, and yeah, good luck with the book.
1: Okay, thank you.